0: Welcome to the Reerick Primary View, where we cover the latest developments in high-yield distressed debt and bankruptcy, and feature discussions on issues affecting distressed debt, leverage finance, direct lending, high-yield bonds, high-yield municipals, covenants, private credit, and middle-market companies. I'm David Zupkis. This week, REERC's Michael Haley speaks with Adam Abbas of Harris Associates about the leveraged loan market, the risks inflation brings to deal-making, the impact of rate volatility, the M&A leverage buyout outlook, and the impact of private credit deals on the primary market. And as always, we're bringing our weekly summary of interesting developments in the restructuring world, as well as a preview of what's on tap for next week. It's Monday, February 5th.
1: Welcome back to another episode of the Reorg Primary View Podcast, where we bring you informed insights on critical issues in the leveraged finance and distressed markets. My name is Michael Haley, Senior Primary Market Reporter at Reorg and I'm pleased to have Adam Abbas of Harris Associates with me today to discuss the leveraged finance market. Adam is the Head of Fixed Income at Harris Associates. He manages various vehicles, but most notably the Oakmark Bond Fund, which received a five-star rating last year and the Oakmark Equity and Income Fund. Welcome, Adam.
2: Thanks, Michael, for having me.
1: So, Adam, as we're about a month into 2024, we've seen what we expect come every January, a rush of new primary issuance coming back in to kick off the new year, mainly for refinancing looming debt. In the beginning of each year, I always like to think that corporate issuers like to get ahead of any potential slowdown in the market and adjust what they need to off the bat to start the year. Having said that, we've seen a handful of deals to finance M&A and LBO activities hit the market, yet that part of the market is still fairly muted. So having said that, I'd love to get your perspective on what risks inflation hold on the leveraged finance market in 2024, and how will this impact high-yield and leveraged loan issuers looking to issue new deals in the primary this coming year?
2: Yeah, I, Michael, I mean, inflation... Has, has certainly been the topic du jour for for a number of years here, for at least two years consecutively. And I think it'll still remain a, uh, it's a good question because it'll remain an important point in the first half of the year uh, for the market. And I think at least in the near term with the labor market holding in fine, you know, that leaves inflation as a key variable and, and whether it can normalize down into that comfortably in that two to two and a half percent range uh in in the fed thinking about a cutting cycle it's going to really dictate how they think about the cutting cycle both the start date the cadence and the magnitude of what they want to do this year in terms of 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 total cumulative easing so when i think about risks we we traditionally just talk about risk to the downside but it's it's always important to think of both the left tail outcomes um those are the negative risks, and the right tail outcomes the positive risks and with inflation, I think my view is that the you know the right tail um, is just as fat as the left tail. And kind of to simplify what I'm saying, get rid of the jargon, is I think the upside risk that inflation comes down and settles around the low twos, in my mind, is is just as high, or possibly even higher now, probabilistically, than kind of the sticky structural inflation problem that the market kind of uh, uniformly subscribed to only a, a, a few quarters ago. So yes, I think the answer is that inflation does still hold key risks for for the levered finance market. And specifically, if we really kind of dial in here, the openness of those low single B and triple C rated companies, but I view those risks, both upside and downside as fairly symmetrical here now. And I even lean kind of the right side, Um, maybe more positive risks to inflation coming down and being benign. Now, the downside risks are, of course, that we we see services inflation re-accelerate, or maybe wages and housing ends up stickier than expected, or then the one we can't control geopolitical event may stress oil or broader supply chains. Um, but the upside risk is that we continue path lower and rents and labor normalize further. And we steady out in the low twos and in, in core inflation. And if that's the case, the, the primary leverage finance market will, will really pick up steam. And, and I think we can talk about this later, but M&A of course, I think we'll pick up as well, maybe in the back half of the year, which will mean lower costs of financing and, and more importantly, more visibility uh, and maybe even fueled with an expectation we get an easier antitrust environment over the next few years, uh, which will pick up um, some activity in the private equity space.
1: Great. Thanks for that, Adam. So given rate volatility being a big factor in the leveraged finance market over the last two years, particularly, I guess, what does the Fed's recent decision last December to anticipate rate cuts at some point in 2024 factor into how fixed, fixed income investors like yourself are thinking about new primary deals to come to the market?
2: Well, well, at Oakmark, we don't ever think about one particular day. We like to look out three to five years, but certainly, uh, and think about long-term intrinsic value of our businesses and then the implicit default risk in those corporations or securitizations. but but certainly December, if my memory serves, December 13th was an important day in that it was the kind of the real pivot day for for Powell in the marketplace. That's kind of when he shifted, like there's more risk to the economy than necessarily to inflation here. Um, They're more balanced and and implicit in that messaging was that um, the the cut, thinking about cuts had begun and and that had been reflected uh, for the first time in the dot plot. it's important to highlight as now we fast forward, let's call it uh, a month and a half, two months, uh, that most of the curve has already priced in an easier environment in that move lower in the front end. And that generally is what occurs uh, with the belly of the curve in the longer end. It, it is the mechanism to nor- normalize where the front end will end up, that what is the front end, which is anchored, uh, it, it it's helping calibrate um, with some term premium where Uh, the front end will ultimately be when we're done with this cut cycle. So we're anywhere from 80, I believe, to 120 basis points lower from that last October highs uh, in the belly and the longer end of the curve. So that indeed has already helped optimism in in the leveraged finance space and the primary market openness, of course, uh, here at the start of the year. And we're kind of seeing that flywheel effect, which we see in credit, but certainly in most asset classes where you get a bit more visibility in this case from the fed which leads to lower nominal rates and fixed which then leads to to good total returns and certainly much better uh, than the negative returns we were getting used to there over the last 24 months and then it leads into flows as they, those follow of course and that which leads to lower um yields and that's there can be a, a bit of a flywheel effect and we're seeing a, a bit of that flywheel effect here um both in december and january and that's helped the primary market. And like I said, in my previous answer, if inflation cooperates and leads to even lower nominal and real yields, um, you know I expect primary market to open even further as, as corporations are opportunistically gonna take out, really that they, they've done a great job as we've all witnessed with managing with uh, maturity walls. That's really more relevant for the more stressed companies. The performing companies in the levered finance space, let's call it the high single Bs and the double Bs or even the crossovers, um it's really an opportunity for them to take out a high coupon that they issued in 20 maybe it was eight non-call three that high coupon becomes callable at a price that makes sense or to swap into maybe floating rate paper which we can maybe talk about later kind of the the framework to think about that and and you let off with the question on rate volatility i i I look at the move index every day and, and we're still you know it's interesting we're still about twice the normal levels of volatility Uh, in the kind of the QE regime we had for 15 years. And so that does mean there still is a a level of uncertainty, and I think there should be uh, uh, appropriately in the market uh, should not dismiss that there's still plenty of unknowns on how fast the Fed is willing to cut and the overall magnitude uh, if the backdrop for inflation stays benign and and the economy stays on sound footing.
1: With these anticipated uh, rate cuts by the Fed, how do you think corporate issuers are thinking differently about issuing primary market bond and loan deals? Kind of this coming year, kind of coming off of uh, last two years when things were a bit volatile in in that market.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's in my opinion, if if you were waiting um, and you had the luxury of waiting, let's say you were fairly patient last year when all in yields were were not prohibitively expensive, but would have been quite expensive. Um, versus history and, and what you could could print at today, I think that that was a good decision. I mean, I think that the, coming to market today, um, yeah, let me lay out the framework. I think if you're if you're kind of thinking about let's we're, we do want to refinance, um, or maybe we want to go pursue an acquisition, and kind of thinking through the sources of that financing, whether it be loan or loan or bond. I mean, I think the futures market right now is saying a so for three-year average around four and a quarter, um, anywhere from four to four and a half, but I think four and a quarter is kind of where we're at on average over three-year life. And the adjustment uh, that the markets have really done to bring that back a, a higher, I think was appropriate Over overlap. We've been com- calling for that over the last quarter that we were, the Fed's futures market was both pricing in too aggressive of cuts and uh, too too quickly here in March with too much certainty. And I think uh, the last couple of weeks, notably we've repriced higher. So the average uh, is around four and a quarter. And I believe in a world where the economy stays, if we just look at a cost of financing in a vacuum, then straight high yield bonds is what I would choose today. Because at an average four and a quarter, and you're assuming let's call it 250 spread on kind of your low double B quality or, or single B double B mix and loans, um, that cost of financing um, backing into a discount margin is going to be higher than the cost of issuing a high yield straight bond. Now, obviously, it's not that straightforward. I think if you're a company growing rapidly, you have high day one leverage, let's say, but very strong fundamentals, rap- rapidly deleveraging through EBITDA growth. You know, term loans might be a great spot to be because they provide, you know, m- maybe it is on average a higher cost of capital over the last three years if you don't refinance. Uh, but they they provide more optionality to the issuer to call the loan uh, in the first two years and reissue with better fundamentals to to either market. So I think there's uh, a couple things to think about here, um, and 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 certainly issuers can be more picky. I think if you're a business that already has long duration exposure and relies on it for profitability, floating rate debt can obviously act as a hedge. And then and then capital market access matters as well. I think. Uh, One of the things we've learned is when when the markets are really good um, and there still is a high degree of uncertainty, which, again, is if you look at um, the move index and and, and rate volatility and um, some other indices, um, there still is some, you know, the 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 range of outcomes, let's say from the the major sell side deaths uh, of where rates will end up and where credit spreads will end up over the next couple of years. I think Mandates that that CFOs and treasurers take a hard look at if they do have um, callable debt to to think about issuing here with a you know a retracement lower of you know anywhere from 125 to 175 basis points uh, in nominal yields uh, in the highest quality bucket and, and even more in that in kind of that double B single B crossover bugger so yeah I think it's if you're prudent you're you're taking a hard look at issuing
1: great thanks Adam. Uh, next, I'd like to get your thoughts on what the M and A and leverage buyout environment looks like, and what role the broadly syndicated loan market will play in it. How do you see that part of the market shaping up this year?
2: Yeah, I think I think certainly as as all in yields, cost of financing are coming down. Again, uh, visibility is improving. There there are still high levels of volatility with the rate market, but we're go- directionally we're going uh, the right way. I think the M and A market will improve and I think syndicated loans will will, will take its usual um, spot in the in those capital structures. I mean, I, even if you think that the front end will stay higher for longer, there's, they, they, these things play a really important role for diversification in capital structure. You want proper demand uh, on your tranches when you're building these books. And therefore, if you have a diversification across high yield straight market and loans it's important. And uh, quite frankly, I think the antitrust backdrop is probabilistically will, you know, it it, it likely will improve if we get uh, someone new uh, in the White House and, and a new administration. And I think that's, that's clearly on bankers' minds. Uh, if you want to be aggressive with deals, today is not the day to play it. And the last 24 months is really, it's not been a great time to do it because it's a very tight antitrust regime, uh, a very hawkish regime. And uh, when you mix that with high nominal yields and high uncertainty, of course, it's gonna kill them in A. And now I think all these things are starting to reverse with an outlook maybe that we have a a, uh, more uh, accommodative antitrust backdrop. Uh, Again, probabilistically, I think it favors that. I'm not sure that uh, you can fully subscribe to that being the case yet. but that, that means M&A and, and, and will pick up, and I think loans will will part, play a part in that, just like they always have. And that's uh, I don't think they're going to be as cheap at cost of financing as certainly as when we were in the zero interest rate policy era for the, the natural reason that, uh, you know, the Fed funds rate isn't zero or close to zero, and it'd probably be closer to three to four for a, a long period of time here. Um, and, and that means uh, that maybe you see a little bit bigger equity sh- checks, or maybe you see a little bit of a shift to the high yield straight market if credit spreads stay tight. Um, but all in all, I think it's 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 due that we pick up. And I think the syndicated leverage market will will play a big role in that.
1: So given the rise of private credit rivalry, the broadly syndicated loan part of the market, Adam, I'd love to get your views on how private credit deals are kind of biting up a part of the primary market and how this is impacting buy side participants role in the primary.
2: Yeah, and private credit is just just so topical. Um, and so I think it's important to think about these dynamics and 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 maybe more importantly, how I think through it, because I don't think private credit's going away. I don't think it's a fad. I don't think it's it's gonna be, you know, there certainly will be a default cycle at some point, um, but I think structurally it's, it's an asset class here to stay and will likely grow. Um, and so that means you have to take it seriously. The trends that we have seen over the last two to three years, you, you should expect them to remain intact or or uh, accelerate. And I think it was natural with the demand the private credit asset class has been getting over the last five years that the, the major players would eventually move upstream for economics. So it it it, it makes complete sense what we've witnessed over, the last two to three years, let's say, and then moving upstream, even grouping up and taking a little bit of share from the syndicate loan market. And I think we, we're we going to have to deal with that more and more over the next few years. I don't think it means that there's just this large, you know, 50% share that goes away over the next five years. I think it's more on the edges where deals make sense. Um, you know, maybe it's a really attractive MA and a deal. Uh, it's just going to be more competitively priced with private credit waiting on the sidelines kind of be a backstop bid or maybe get competitive in certain situations, you know, maybe that premium that you were historically afforded just to the broadly syndicated market is going to get arbed out a little bit. And that, and that's healthy. That's, there's no, I don't think that makes the broadly syndicated market any less attractive. It, It might mean that there's a few less deals that are blockbuster deals that are priced, uh, with a big, uh, amount of, of discount for, on new issue uh and it might eat into into that a bit and and get competed away a a bit but i i I don't think to me this is kind of a shift that might mean single digit share shifts over time this isn't something that uh is so dramatic that it change changes the entire um value proposition for for the loan market
1: right right interesting so to finish up here, Adam, I'd love to get your outlook on what themes we can expect to come up in the leveraged finance market in 2024. Will conditions get better and primary issuance pick up, or will we still see activity fairly muted and issuers look to alternative financing opportunities such as private credit more? We'd love to get your perspective on this as we're wrapping up here.
2: Yeah, I think like I led off with, I think the risk to inflation now, in my opinion, skew, are, are really... Symmetrical, if not skew favorably here, uh, in, you know, kind of tilting towards a maybe a soft landing, and that should mean that conditions will improve and and activity will improve, it, notwithstanding a labor market that that breaks down a bit. There are there are a little bit of cracks there, but nothing um, fundamental uh, to a break that points to a breakdown of the labor market today. And as we move into the back half of the year, if inflation remains benign. Um, in this kind of two and a two and a half percent core expectation and in labor market stays firm. Look, look for MA to maybe drive an uptick in issuance in, in Q3 or Q4. And uh at fixed income, as with all classes, there, there is this flywheel effect, like I said. So you know, you start to get more primary issuance from new from more demand and flows into the space, and you get positive total returns from. Uh, deal credit spreads moving tighter, and then you get more flows. I think we could see that uh, momentum persisting um, for some time this year, again, uh, assuming the backdrop stays uh, fairly benign. So I think all in all, I think there's there's a positive outlook for the primary market, certainly compared to last year. And eventually, I think we're going to be talking about M&A driving a, a lot of the uptick in uh, in volumes.
1: Well, we're just going to have to wait and see. Thank you so much for your time today, Adam. It was my pleasure to have you on New York's
0: Prime Review podcast.
2: Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Michael.
0: For in court coverage this week, we take a look at Baiju's Alpha, Goal Airlines, Diamond Sports Group, Wesco Aircraft, Puerto Rico, Endo International, and the latest developments in the Judge Jones scandal out of the Southern District of Texas. On Monday, Judge Martin Glenn granted the Gola Airlines debtors' requested first-day relief, including a $350 million interim dip financing draw. No parties oppose interim approval of the full $950 million new money financing, debtors' counsel explained, after the Abra noteholders serving as dip backstalkers agreed to an important concession. The 2026 noteholders' collateral will not be primed in the interim dip order. Diamond Sports Group debtors filed emergency motions for approval of amended telecast rights agreements to Cleveland Guardians, Texas Rangers, and Minnesota Twins, three major baseball league teams whose agreements the debtors have not committed to assume under the recently announced Amazon-sponsored restructuring support agreement. According to the motions, the debtors continue to negotiate with MLB over a global deal for assumption of all rights agreements between MLB clubs and the debtors, and the three teams will be included in an equally and rateably benefit from any global resolution. Judge Marvin Isger presided over three days of trial this week on challenges to the Incore Wesco debtors' March 2022 uptier exchange transaction. Encora Wesco Chief Financial Officer Raymond Carney took the witness stand Tuesday to testify on the liquidity crisis that spurred the company into pursuing the uptier transaction and the dynamics between different creditor groups. On Thursday, Platinum Board member Malik Vordelvebeka faced tough questions from Judge Isger regarding the fairness of the transaction. The U.S. Court of Appeals to the First Circuit heard oral argument Monday in consolidated appeals of Judge Laura Taylor Swain's lien limitation, unsecured net revenue claim estimation and related rulings in the lien and recourse challenge arising out of the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority's Title III case. The panel did not say when it intends to rule in what Judge William Kayada Jr. called a complicated case. Last week, Rerick published an analysis of creditor recoveries under Inter-International's proposed amended plan of reorganization filed on January 5th. Trading prices of prepetition first lien debt imply a reorganized equity value of about 2 billion and an enterprise value of about4.3 billion or 7 times the company's 2024 estimated EBITDA. Compared with earlier iterations of the plan, first-ling lenders would receive less takeback debt and more of the 1st firstling recoveries would come from participation in the rights offering. On Wednesday, the U.S. trustee moved to reopen several cases with the aim of filing disgorgement motions as part of its campaign to vacate fees awarded to Houston-based law firm Jackson Walker in cases potentially tainted by the secret relationship between former Judge David R. Jones and former partner Elizabeth Freeman. Disgorgement motions against Jackson Walker are already pending in 18 cases, most of which have been consolidated into a miscellaneous proceeding for pre trial purposes. The U.S.T. previewed its intent to bring several other cases into the mix, including ICOR, McDermott, Jones Energy, LaForda and Volusion LLC. Spirit Airlines, Anastasia Beverly Hills, Aventive, and Explore round out this week's crop of near-term restructurings and refinancings. RIG estimates that after a number of sale-leaseback transactions in December and January, Spirit has very little remaining equity value in its fleet, implying that the scope for future deals may be constrained. Depending on the specific aircraft sold in the recent transactions and based on estimated market prices, Rourke estimates the spirit likely as 250 million to 400 million of equity remaining in its fleet, requiring the company to seek alternative measures to address its upcoming debt maturities. Certain lenders to Belk are becoming restricted to negotiate potential out-of-court restructuring. The department store chain is expected to refinance its ABL due August 2024 and the first lien first out term loan due tw- July 2025 while holders of the first lien second-out and second lien term loans would become the new majority equity owner, sources have said. A group of Anastasia Beverly Hills lenders represented by Millbank, has a cooperative agreement in place. The company's credit facility, including a revolver and term loan, mature in 2025. Adventiv is headed toward a potential debt restructuring pivoting away from refinancing after a failed attempt last string. Liquidity became tight as the provider of telecom services to correctional facilities found itself unable to pay debt service at the end of 2023. Explore disclosed this week that it received a $9 million Canadian dollar equity contribution. The inde- injection came as the broadband service provider seeks a liquidity boost, potentially through a drop-down transaction, as subscriber losses and capital expenditures have pressured cash flow. <music> Top red stories this week included, Accent Care's proposed deal continues carrot-and-stick approach to incentivize participation and minimize holdouts. Court opinion review, the Third Circuit mandates examiners the possible end of the PTE two-step, DSG's dicey reorganization, and Delaware doubles down on release consent. Judge Grant's 3M's request to pay cash in lieu of a $1 billion stock offering as part of Global Combat Arms Earplug Settlement. And now here's Kate Thomas from New York with The Week Ahead.
3: Welcome to The Week Ahead. My name is Kate Thomas, and here are a few highlights from the upcoming week. A longer schedule of the week's events can be found on the REARG website under America's Week Ahead. The week begins on Monday, February 5th, with a first-day hearing for Indian education company Baiju's U.S. entity. Baiju's Alpha filed on February 1st in the District of Delaware. An ad hoc group of prepetition lenders is providing a senior-secured multi-draw dip facility of up to $260 million to fund the case. According to the first day papers, the case was filed to pursue claims related to the pre-petition transfer of $533 million to Camshaft Capital Fund by the debtor's former management. Since defaulting on a $1.2 billion term loan in March 2023, the debtor and its parents have been involved in litigation with pre-petition term loan lenders related to the transfer and to the debtor's default. Then on Tuesday, February 6th, The block wind-down debtors will seek approval of their settlement with Three Arrows capital. The heavily redacted settlement filed with the court resolves several disputes between the parties by giving 3AC an allowed general unsecured claim in an unknown amount and mutual releases, among other terms. 3AC has asserted approximately $283 million of claims against BlockFi, while BlockFi says that 3AC owes it approximately $129 million. The wind-down debtors, whose plan was confirmed on September 26th and who recently announced that distributions were beginning on January 31st, say the settlement helps facilitate distributions in the near term and significantly enhances recoveries for Block file lending creditors in particular. Jumping to Thursday, February 8th, another settlement is up for approval, this time in MVK Farm Co. The proposed settlement resolves myriad legal issues and claims among key parties in the case thereby avoiding costly litigation and a protracted plan confirmation process. However, objectors, including the debtor's former CEO, have asserted that the proposed settlement impermissibly seeks to modify the debtor's plan after the voting and objection deadlines have already passed. At a hearing last week, Judge Lori Selber-Silverstein denied the debtor's request for expedited consideration of the settlement. The judge also pushed the debtor's confirmation hearing to February 28th Notwithstanding the dip lender's stated refusal to extend the dip confirmation milestone of February 9th, the confirmation hearing was slated to go forward this Thursday. That's it for now. For more on the week ahead, check out America's Week Ahead on the REER website and have a great week.
0: Thank you again for tuning in to the REER primary review and our weekly review. Find all our podcasts on the Rear.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Take care and see you all next week.